this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Lesha Titsky As I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 3 On Thanksgiving Day, we reached Vienna, my sister to study singing, and I for one last year with Leschetizky. We were happy, indeed overjoyed, as we arrived there in a beautiful snowstorm and went at once to the embassy to celebrate Thanksgiving and to see our friends. Of course, I was all eagerness to see Leschetizky again and to go to the house with which I had so many pleasant associations, all the more valuable to me now since I had had such difficulty in coming back. He lived in the Varing Cottage. His villa was large and roomy, and on entering it, one had the impression of intense activity within. To the right of the entrance hall was the dining room, straight ahead the large music room, and a smaller room filled with shelves of old music. In the music room, at the end next to the dining room, were two large grand pianos, side by side, one furnished by Busendorfer of Vienna and the other by Bechstein of Berlin. They were covered with piles of music, kept in perfect order by Leschetizky, according to a system of his own whereby he could instantly find any composition he wanted. Here were famous old copies, with marks by the composers themselves, precious documents to Leschetizky. Near the piano were the marble busts of Annette Esipoff and of Chopin. Whenever the pianos became worn in the slightest degree by usage, they were quickly exchanged for better ones by the manufacturers. The pupils sat at the Busendorfer and Leschetizky at the Beckstein. If any pupil were unfortunate enough to break a string, Leschetizky, however displeased, would himself instantly put a new one on and tune the instrument. Beyond the music room was a balcony with steps leading down to a lovely garden thick with trees and shrubbery, and far away down a path could be seen a large bust of Beethoven. During the hours of the classes, one often awaited one's turn to play, pacing up and down this garden, hoping that no one would come to interrupt the misery. In the rooms on the second floor, where Madame Eugenie, his wife and former pupil, had her rooms and practiced, were pianos of other makes, a Blutner and a Steinway, the best instruments these firms could furnish. On the third floor lived Leschetizky's old friend, Mr. Minkus, a Russian violinist whose public career was ended. His health was failing, and Leschetizky had invited him to spend his last years under his roof. He played most beautifully, 
and I was often sent up to him for practice of chamber music. Downstairs, to the left of the hall, was a small room called the torture chamber by the students, where they waited their turn for lessons. The hours spent in that room were filled with varied emotions. If one heard shouts of rage from Leshetitsky, one shuddered for what might possibly be his own fate later, and listening outside, one was almost as alarmed to hear playing that made him cheerful and happy, or so far beyond one's own present possibilities that there was great danger of not being able to prolong his good mood. The shouts of rage usually meant that the pupil was playing unrhythmically. This had the worst possible effect upon Leshetitsky. As he came downstairs one morning, a pupil was heard inquiring of the butler if the professor was in a good humor. Leshetitsky overheard and stepped quickly forward. "'My dear girl,' he said, "'my humor depends on the playing I hear. I hardly think I could live through the kind of day I had yesterday, every one unrhythmical.' There were naturally all kinds of lessons— Poor lessons by good pupils, good lessons by pupils he expected little of, but if the pupil had no rhythmical sense, it was better to study with someone else, unless he had real heroism. In after years I learned how much tact and sympathy and discretion were needed in that room to greet the returning pupil, elated or despairing, as the case might be, and also to appreciate the kindness and sweetness that had been shown me in my various moods on returning to that room for my hat and coat. After several trips to the Varing cottage, only to find that each time Leshetitsky was too busy to see me, I soon suspected that something was wrong. However, the delight of being once more in Vienna mitigated any feeling of uneasiness, and, with my sister, I sent out invitations for a large at-home. Of course, most of the pupils made it a point to be in Vienna early in autumn, and it did not occur to me that Leshetitsky might be annoyed at my late return. Our social activities must have seemed to him very foolish, and without knowing the difficulties I had overcome in returning to Europe to study again, he denounced me before the class in a way I have never forgotten. Before I went home, I had had weekly lessons from him, but this time it was January before I found it possible to get a lesson at all. Just before the first class of the new year, one was arranged, and it proved to be a memorable affair for me. I expressed myself as very happy to be in his rooms again, and he said he was very glad to see me. But his manner was so cold that I was utterly bewildered. "'Sit down,' he said, "'and let's have a little talk. "'Now, you are a very charming girl, and I like you very much, "'but I have found another teacher for you. "'You know, I am too difficult for you to study with. "'You should be able to have a good time here in Vienna, "'and not have to study so hard as you have to study with me. "'I hear that Alfred Grunfeld is a little more lenient toward his pupils than I am. "'He is a very agreeable person, plays beautifully.' and is a splendid teacher, you will have far more time to enjoy yourself and to give teas in Vienna. 
For the first time, I found Leshetitsky thoroughly cross with me. My heart sank with every word he said, and I was very much overwhelmed. Finally, he did consent to hear me play, and promised to think over the matter of giving me further lessons if I really felt serious about it. I had prepared the Schumann Concerto for this lesson, but nothing about it pleased him. After the first movement, he closed the pages, told me to put the concerto away and not to bring it to him again for at least two years. Then came the first class. We were all assembled. Leshetitsky entered the room, scratching his head in a way familiar to those who knew him well. It always meant trouble of some sort. He made a short speech. This is the first class of the year, and I hope in this year to accomplish great things. Let us begin at once. Who is going to play? Somehow everyone seemed petrified, which only increased his nervousness. This is all nonsense, he continued. I want those who are going to play tonight to give their names at once. Seven or eight arose at that, but as I was not going to play, I remained seated. Turning abruptly to the whole class, he said, If there is anyone here tonight who has been in the habit of playing and does not give his name at once, that person may leave the room and not come out here again, where there are serious people. Gradually I became aware that everyone in the room was looking at me. Half-dazed, I arose to my feet and said, If you mean me, Professor, I have nothing to play. Of course I mean you. I want this company to know that you have come to Europe to drink tea. You have been spoiled by me. You have been spoiled by everybody. Now there is something else in life besides being spoiled. I sat down in the bitterest confusion and dismay, but Leshetitsky knew that he had hurt me enough, and that was all he wanted. At that instant, I resolved that my study should turn towards some point and purpose. It was one thing to resolve, and another to accomplish. My attitude had changed, but he was still suspicious of my real seriousness in study. It was not long after that painful experience in the class that he told me I forgot half the fine points in the lesson by meeting people on the way home, going out to tea, or amusing myself in some other way when I should go quietly home by myself and think over the lesson. There was a little chapel about ten minutes' walk from his house, and after that I formed the habit of stopping in there until there was no more danger of meeting my friends. A lesson with Leshetitsky was highly instructive in many ways. Often there was very little playing in the lesson. Sometimes he would hear a piece through in silence and then quietly remark at the end, Well, do you like it that way? More often a great deal of the time was taken up with conversation. It was always a disappointment to him if the pupil failed to grasp his meaning and apply it to the music. If a piece was really well played, one would usually hear from him, Don't you want to play this in the class? And if one demurred, well, you should want to. It is good practice. It is like walking up to the cannons to play a piece the first time before an audience. 
the wise one will gather his friends and also his enemies together and try to please them. Yes, before a concert, it is necessary to practice before people. Make them listen to you, whether they want to do so or not. Scratch on the doors to be allowed to play. You may think you have a piece learned, but you never know until you have tried it in public. Of course, if you had imagination enough, this would not be necessary. You might fancy yourself before an audience at home, come out and bow to it, and then see how nervous you would be. Even then, you never know what kind of audience you are going to have or how it will affect you. One pupil took exception to this advice, believing that a piece properly learned would go just as well in public the first time as after repeated tests. She was expecting to appear with orchestra in Germany at the end of the year, but persistently refused to try the concerto before the other students. Well, let her see, said Nashitsky. After a very unsuccessful performance on account of nervous strain, she returned and humbly begged to be allowed to play the Heller Preludes in class. On the other hand, it was only when the piece had been brought to a professional standard that one was asked to play in the class. I once brought to him a very difficult composition which I hoped to have ready for the class in a few weeks. It was quite unfinished technically. He threw the book on the floor in a rage and exclaimed, How can you be so foolish? That will not be ready to play in six months. You must not become one of those pianists who have to work themselves into a frenzy at the last moment. I began to see that a great deal of one's happiness with him depended upon how one acquitted oneself in the class. He was then as much the critic as the master, and he was delighted if one succeeded, miserable and displeased if one failed. The pupils who had played were asked to stay to supper, and the better one had played, the nearer to Leshetitsky one was allowed to sit at table. There was often enthusiastic reference made to the very good playing, or a kindly criticism of the playing less good. Bertha Jan is the only one tonight, he said once, who succeeded in getting the touch of the new Busendorfer piano. The rest of you failed, he said smilingly. We are a truthful family here. It is good practice to criticize if we do it with intelligence and without prejudice. Of course, it is human to be prejudiced and partial. I cannot help being so myself, he said. How can I help liking to see a not-ugly-looking young girl like Bertha, who half the time does not know how well she plays, go to the piano quite simply and strike first notes with such beautiful tones? Ladies and gentlemen, he went on, rising, first let me tell you what great pleasure one or two of you have given me this evening. There is one down there hanging his head, but he need not do it. It was only bad judgment in taking too fast a tempo. That happens to everyone. Indeed, no less a person than Rubinstein made such mistakes and told me once, you will excuse me, he could have spit in his face for beginning the last movement so fast. But another has suddenly begun to be artistic and two or three are on the right road. 
Looking in another direction, he said, We have in reality no shattered hopes here tonight. We have, moreover, very little chance here for jealousies and affectations, for we have to come forward every now and then and show exactly what we can do. It is easy enough to think you are a great man when you are not obliged to prove it. And so he would go on at these suppers. Toward faults of memory, he was more lenient than anything else. I have seen him sitting at the other piano, running his fingers over the keys, while the pupils played to supply the notes where a possible slip of memory might occur. But I have also seen pupils sent from the room after one chord which had been badly attacked. Wrong notes disturbed him greatly. "'Is there any one in this room who can play without striking wrong notes?' he called out one evening. Then, turning to a row of long-haired young men, standing at the back of the room, he said, "'Come up here, one of you, and see if your long hair will help you to do it any better.' What to him were probably the most serious faults were bad phrasing and a failure to listen to one's own playing so as to judge the relationship of one's tone to another. Before us all, he knelt at the bust of Chopin one evening and exclaimed, O oh, Chopin, forgive us for what has been done to thy music in this room. My most painful recollection is of the time when I disappointed him in the Tchaikovsky concerto. At one of my lessons, he said to me, Your technique is now at a point where you can very easily learn the Tchaikovsky concerto. That is one of the easiest to play if one has technique enough. The following week I brought it to the lesson. He thought there was no reason why I should not play it in the class two days later. I thought otherwise, and did not intend to do so unless he particularly wished it. When Wednesday evening came, I was startled to hear him begin a speech by saying how quickly a thing could be learned if the technique machinery were in order. It is perfectly possible, he said, to learn a great composition in a few days, as actors learn their roles overnight. One of us has prepared the Tchaikovsky concerto in a week and will play it. I said, ten days, professor. A very quickly learned concerto, he rejoined. Some of the artists who were present crowded round the piano where I sat trembling so that I could scarcely keep my feet on the pedals. He began the orchestral part with great fire and carried me along through the first movement. The second movement pleased him too. He loved to play this concerto and plunged enthusiastically into the third movement where I suddenly left out a whole page of repetition and only great quickness on his part saved us from collapse. We finished the piece, but the enthusiasm was gone. At supper that evening, there were no speeches. In the succeeding lessons, I found him so depressed and disappointed that I was in a wretched mood for weeks. It was a long time before I succeeded in pleasing him by anything I did. Some small, carefully learned pieces for one lesson brought no encouragement to me from Leszczytski. I looked into his face in vain for any sign of gratification or enthusiasm. Some time later, however, 
I pleased him with an entirely correct performance in the class of the Mendelssohn Concerto in G minor. Also by my willingness to learn a long and difficult set of variations in manuscript by the Belgian composer Leopold Wallner. This manuscript had a curious history. A musician, while walking along one of the streets of Brussels, happened to hear good piano playing before a certain house. She knocked at the door and was invited to enter. Noticing a great pile of music, all in manuscript, she asked the player if his compositions had been published, and received the very modest reply that he had not thought it worth while. One of these she sent to me, and Leszczycki was delighted with it, considering it pianistic and interesting in many ways. It was such a laborious task to read this very illegible manuscript that I think I won at last a bit of admiration from Leszczycki in this roundabout way. At a later lesson, he turned quite seriously to me and said, Who would think that a little blonde American girl would be able to catch the rhythm of that part so correctly? It is one of the places that, if you imagine incorrectly, it is an all-day job to undo the wrong. It must be heard correctly the first time. You would be surprised if you knew with whom I spent one whole night trying to get the rhythm correct. We were tired, too, but toward morning we had it. You Americans are curious people. You have all kinds of good qualities, but they do not coordinate. You disappointed me in the Tchaikovsky Concerto. No, no, not because you left out a part, but because you failed where so many fail. It was the first time I had heard you play with real freedom of rhythm, and it was that that upset you. It frightens me, and I have yet to discover whether you can ever put freedom and sureness together. I want to know that you can, he went on, in almost pathetic tones, for accuracy without expression isn't worth that, snapping his fingers. Our lessons from now on must have a different character entirely. You must play your pieces too freely for a while and learn sureness from a different angle. Don't be afraid to express yourself. One player you may like to hear, the other, who knows far more perhaps, you do not care a bit for. Why is it? Your audience does not know either. They only know that there is something they like with the one. With the other, they are more apt to say they never liked the piano anyway. And your audience longs to be pleased. And your uneducated audiences are also hard to please. They want emotion and expression more than technique. Educated audiences will give you credit for all kinds of things that the other audiences will not, and how everyone loves beautiful tones and stirring rhythms. But you mustn't break down before an audience under any circumstances. They will always be nervous over you afterward. How easy it all sounds when it is beautiful, I said. Yes, he replied, but the footlights make it difficult. And here you have them, so make the most of them, and go on playing in the class. It was most difficult to play before these 150 students, with Leszczycki himself sitting at the other piano. 
the teachers were there, who were the assistants of Leshetitsky, and, of course, many of the pupils were learning the composition one was about to play. Leshetitsky liked good manners at the piano, and a poor deportment made him either sarcastic or inclined to ridicule. One girl held her head too far over the piano. Leshetitsky came up behind her at the end of every phrase or two and tilted her chin higher in the air. A specially confident bearing was also a dangerous offence to his sense of propriety, although he was never fond of excessive diffidence and lack of ease. If one demurred too long about playing, the second invitation from him was perhaps not forthcoming, unless there had been good reason for hesitating to play. But he was touchingly fond of supplying himself the deficiencies of pupils who were serious in trying to overcome them and who would not accept applause when it was unmerited. One rarely received a compliment from Leshetitsky. A compliment was a great concession from him, and if one heard him say, not bad, it was something to be remembered. Jan Sikic related how miserable he was on one occasion after playing in the class, because, though everyone else had seemed pleased with his playing and told him they were, Leshetitsky did not say a word about it, and when he passed him, Leshetitsky was silent and walked away, giving no sign of approval. Jan decided to go home and not stay to supper, and, feeling very much displeased and disheartened, he slipped quietly away without saying good night. Someone remarked this to Leshetitsky, who seemed surprised and touched. However, at their next meeting, Leshetitsky only scolded him roundly for his departure, and on hearing that Jan had left because Leshetitsky had not seemed pleased with his playing, went on with the scolding, telling him he must not be vain. He had received compliments enough that evening, and hadn't needed any contribution from him. He had heard them all pay him compliments. "'If you expect me to pay you compliments here,' said Leshetitsky, "'well, you have come to the wrong address.'" The classes were great occasions in many ways. Singers, actors, and painters were usually present. Madame Frances Saville sometimes came. Teresa Leshetitska came from Russia with her husband, who sang in the opera at St. Petersburg, and one day Loie Fuller introduced her protégé, Isadora Duncan, who at that time was just beginning to dance in Europe. She arrived at Leshetitsky's house after her first performance in Vienna. Leshetitsky was immensely interested in her appearance that evening. She went upstairs at once and asked for lamb chops at eleven o'clock. "'She shall have them,' said Leshetitsky. "'Run and try to get them, some of you. "'Be sure to get them,' he ordered, "'for we must do our part this evening.'" Her bare feet were a sight new to Vienna and to us, but Leshetitsky begged her not to mind our levity, saying that he would turn us all out if we displeased her. Then he sat down at his Beckstein and played for her to dance as long as she would. Her manager made the fatal mistake of asking Leshetitsky to sign a contract to go as her accompanist around the world, and we were all rather sorry for this faux pas, 
as we had considered it the greatest honor that he had played so long and so beautifully. He played Chopin mazurkas and his own mazurkas, followed by most beautiful improvisations, so that her great dancing became almost a secondary affair. Leszczytski was always quite willing and pleased to accompany singers. He was rarely asked to do so, but at his own house generally volunteered. Alice Barbie, whose singing Leszczytski loved, used to like to come to the classes at times, and, if she could be prevailed upon to sing, he felt greatly honoured. On one particular evening she was going to sing some new songs, and, besides, wished to have some of them transposed. I happened to be the only one of the pupils she knew, so she looked around and asked me to accompany her and to transpose the songs. I was embarrassed, and Leszczytski evidently noticed it, for he walked over to her instantly and asked her if she would like him to play her accompaniment. Of course she had not thought of asking him. After she had sung and had moved everyone greatly with her marvelous voice and interpretation, the thought evidently struck Leszczytski that perhaps someone else had noticed my embarrassment. So he said quite loudly to me, did I not recommend a sonata to you to play some time with the violinist who is coming soon? I started to say that he must have forgotten that I had played it to him two days before, half learned, but he gave me a sign to keep silent, and went on. I should like to hear that sonata. Some parts of it are very beautiful, and I think the notes are here. Of course you are only reading it, but you read well and can give a good idea of what it is. So I sat down and read the thing through beautifully. At any rate, other good readers in the class crowded around us to congratulate me and said they had no idea I read so perfectly. The most difficult passages were read as well as the easy ones, and anyone might have noticed the twinkle in Leszczytski's eye. Just as we were leaving, Leszczytski gave me a wink and a nod, and whispered in my ear, Now go home and learn to read. There was indeed not much tendency in the Leszczytski class towards superficiality or conceit. He was always quick to detect anything artificial in our behavior. The slightest evidence of conceit was noticed by him, as well as the opposite traits of diffidence and sensitiveness. He had an excellent memory for little traits of character, expression, or tones of voice, but once he became convinced of seriousness and sincerity, one felt friendship behind even the severest words. A lack of vital interest in study and improvement was incomprehensible to him, and he was patient with and admired only those whose energies were equal to their desires in fulfilling their duty to their talent. Chapter 4 There were some lessons that might be called typical lessons, and this is one of my own that I well remember. Well, what have we to play today? The Schumann Carnival, Herr Professor. Really? The Schumann Carnival. Learn the Schutt Carnival sometime, too. That is also a real carnival. People don't play it enough. 
there is a very good reason why. It has to be played well, as Schumann has to be. Nowadays, it must be more than well played. You know, I have been talking about you today. Martha Schmidt was here, and we spoke of you. She says she met you in the Prater the other day, and her account of the conversation with you is not quite satisfactory. This she says laughingly, and I begin to be a little disturbed. Oh, don't take it too seriously, or I shall think she was right. She says you were offended because she made some criticism of your technique. You were not offended, were you? No, I was very much obliged to her. Well, she thinks you resented it. But Martha is probably right. She knows a great deal. You must remember, too, that she expresses herself more freely than you do. When you are really serious, you are quiet and uncommunicative. You should be more expressive and say what you think. People should give the correct impression of themselves. There is generally no reason for being misunderstood in this world. Of course, that is not the Viennese temperament. Now, there is Schutt, for instance. He is expressive, and sometimes might be a little less so in public. In the Bösendorfer Hall, for instance, if something delights him, he begins to make love to the performer. No one is expressive enough for him. But he has written many beautiful pieces, and his carnival is one of them. Perhaps I say too much, but parts of it to me are more beautiful than the Schumann carnival. And how I wish I myself had written that little prelude in D major of his. Learn to play Schutz music as it really is, and you will become more expressive at the piano, perhaps too much so. Americans might go too far if they really got started, but I think there is not much danger of that. This I find ambiguous, and he smiles at my confusion. Leschetizky has often said that our Puritan background has stamped us all with too much rigidity in our bearing as well as in our souls. But Martha told me other things, too. Martha says you have now in your repertoire three ballades of Chopin and only one Bach fugue. If I can ever find your specialty in music, I shall thank heaven, but up to now I have not found it, and we must not become unbalanced. Better one Chopin ballade and three Bach fugues, and then, my dear child, you never learn things like the Etincelles of Moskowski. Don't be too scornful of that sort of piece. You need those pieces to complete your repertoire. You know, a dinner must have the accessories. That is a piece you hand out to your audience, like sweets wrapped in silver paper and served on a silver plate. There must be nothing about it that isn't perfect to the last detail. Study like Fanny Bloomfield Zeisler, who, when she has something like that to learn, extracts everything from it. She presses everything out of it, like juice from a lemon. She misses nothing. And you must also take pleasure in studying such things. They are not thick with music, as is the Schumann Carnival. There is nothing special there, you understand. You must make them interesting and beautiful yourself. Well, now the Schumann Carnival. We must not talk too much. Someone is coming afterward.
Do you know, this life is really killing me. I suffer so in some of these lessons. I give my heart's blood. They say yes, but they play no. Perhaps you will brighten me up now with the carnival of Schumann well played. You are going to play it in the class, surely. I have just noticed a little unusual disorder in the room. Leshetitsky always smokes a great deal during the lessons, and today there are many cigar ashes around the pianos. The chairs on one side of the room are pushed away from their usual places, which all means to me that Leshetitsky has been giving a difficult and tiring lesson before mine, or perhaps more than one. He has evidently been walking also, as he often does, to indicate graceful tempos or to show the pupil what awkward ones he is using. Or he has been correcting bad pauses or showing by suddenly plunging ahead or drawing back the way the pupil is playing. A glass of water nearby makes me suspect that he has been tiring his voice and has probably been shouting. If a pupil played unrhythmically, he generally did stop him with shouts. This is not all conducive to my happiness at the moment, but I get myself together as well as I can and begin the Schumann Carnival. Ho, ho, he says. Well, now, a little more courage to begin with. More festive than that. I was very much pleased the other night on entering the house of a friend of yours to hear a piece very well played which I didn't know at all. A waltz of Moskowski, you say. Well, I apologize. You do learn the side pieces, since it was you who were playing it. Very good. Sentimental. Well, the carnival of Schumann is sentimental in places. Where one learns the true spirit of the carnival is here, in Vienna. I try again to make the opening chords like his. When I say I cannot, I receive a long lecture on the changes that have taken place in my tone and touch lately, especially about the fingers, which Leshetitsky thinks are not now strong enough to temper the muscular force that my arms have acquired. He has noticed this before, he says, and I would give anything I possessed if I had not been slighting my finger technique so that my chords could roll out in the smooth way that his do without any apparent effort. You see, Martha Schmidt was perfectly right, he goes on. Martha is now the best in the class. Again, Leshetitsky launches forth in a description of the things she has just accomplished. She has a real interpretation for everything she plays. She goes to every concert and comes away with an intelligent criticism. Why don't I accept a position as critic on some small newspaper in Austria or in France? Write as correspondent for Viennese concerts? Excellent practice, Leshetitsky says. I begin to think that we shall not be able to play much of the carnival today if we get so far afield, and I put my hands on the keys again. There you are, in a hurry, always in a hurry, he says. You play hurriedly sometimes, too, and your pauses are not good. Here he compares relaxing all the muscles to the deep breathing of the singer. And take long breaths, he says. You will relax the muscles better then. 
He tells me what deep breaths Rubinstein used to take at the beginning of long phrases, and also what repose he had and what dramatic pauses. There is more rhythm between the notes than in the notes themselves. He reminded me that Liszt used to say this. Paula Schalit is the only one who ever asked me to tell how Rubinstein breathed. No one else ever seemed interested to know. Well, now once more, and go on. I get to the second page, when Leszczytski's posture at the piano attracts my attention. He sits there forlornly, and really looks as if he were going to weep. I thought you were going to make me happy today, he says, and then, most dejectedly, really, today, if you do not play that part with warmth, I cannot bear to hear it. If you knew how often lately I have heard the Schumann Carnival. Play me the Schutt Carnival instead. That's fresh. That's new. I am tired of the Schumann Carnival. I hardly know what to do with myself at this point, so I ask him if I may try it once more. The pedal is wrong. My dear child, he says, God won't help you. You have to hear that yourself. This makes me laugh and my laugh for the moment saves the situation. There is great charm in this part, but with you it is all lost. I admit, this first part is also the most difficult. In the rest of the carnival, the expression is given, so to speak. With understanding, one can play the rest better. We proceed to the Piero, but I have not succeeded in dispelling his depression. Some moments of a lesson with him are very long, and he has stopped me at the first chord and shakes his head mournfully. You ought to know better than that, he says. You did the same thing at your last lesson. You do not even know what, he says. That must not be told you twice. You must hear it. If a stranger heard you play that way, he would say you were a very talented person, but you had a bad teacher. It isn't your strength at all. It is your ear. Why the bass so loud, he says, coming over to my piano. Never cover up the top when it has anything to say. Yes, that one note one calls bad, really bad, he says. I try again. Stop, he calls. Wait, you do not have to catch any trains, have you? Or have you, perhaps, he said, going back to his piano. I haven't any to catch, and here I sit, waiting to hear a plain A-flat played with tone. I tell you, you would be the first to criticize if you heard someone else play like that. You go to a concert to have pleasure in the music, don't you? Well, it is no pleasure hearing it played that way. Now, I notice that you can learn a piece quite perfectly at first, but then you let it go. And sometimes, in the end, it does not sound as you think it sounds, or the way you mean it to sound, and believe that it does sound. The right sound must be kept and also brought out. Yes, you smile, but you should not smile just this minute. Don't you think that Mr. Zauer would have studied a whole hour on these two or three bars to bring out clearly the meaning of the notes, if he was not satisfied with them? You are not always clear. Besides, sometimes you must even underscore. For you it is clear, of course, because you know it. But not everyone does know. 
Besides, there will be some who know it so well that they suspect you do not. You have a brain for this purpose, and you must not be satisfied because you understand the notes yourself. The other one must understand them too. On occasions, one uses the brain, you see. Yes, I say, and try to smile. Until you learn to think an hour for every hour you play, you have not learned to study. We have come to the end of the Piero. You mustn't distort him, he says. Just the same Piero had some noble instincts. He was a loving creature, too. We get over to the Eusebius, and I cannot please him. Every phrase seems to depend on the way one plays the one preceding, and every time Leshetitsky plays the whole so differently that I am discouraged and beg to be allowed to leave it until another time. Not at all. Not at all, he says. You will go home and think and think and come no nearer to it. This is a question of touch and tempo, and if you will only listen better. Why, some people learn a language by listening and never see a book. The grammar will not teach you how to play this part. Stop thinking now for a moment and listen. Leshetitsky plays this part again, but still very differently. It cannot be the same every time, he says. Don't try so hard, but let your good ear direct you. In the second half, he jumps impatiently from his chair and shows me by stiff and jerky motions what my rhythm has been. I would like to let it go as well as you would, he says, but we must not leave it this way. It must be richer and fuller. There are no bare branches here. You must have the leaves on the trees. One does not become an artist in a day, he remarks. There are so many qualities that go toward the playing of this one part. Warmth, abandon, and fine shading, and intense listening, and willpower. All those things besides the notes. I have not even followed the marks of shading in the good Peter's edition. It would be so much easier to be more attentive to those marks, he said, unless indeed one could make better marks oneself, and some do not even take the trouble to find out the meaning of the names, Estrella, Floristan, etc. Leshetitsky hates nothing more than dejection on the part of a pupil. I start out as bravely as I can with the next, and also finish the one called Coquette. Deceiver! This is one word when I finish. A smile or a laugh or a pleasantry always made everything better in the lessons. And when he reiterates deceiver, I think the best thing I can say is, I believe you are right, which brings a smile to his face. Of course, he says, you know the meaning of coquette as well as anyone. Well then, since you have understood me, let us go on. I realize now that I must play and not be stupid, and that if I have studied the piece well at all, I must at least do something that will show a little spirit and initiative. Yes, I know you can do it, he remarks, but then why so timid in the beginning? Timidity in feeling is no good. The tempos are the manners in one sense, and your manners in playing are too timid. 
In another place, I have tried to make a difficult technical passage easier by playing some of the notes with the left hand which belong to the right. The change is too conspicuous and makes it appear that my technique is not adequate. Play it as it is written, he tells me. This is a general's piece, and you must play it like a general. I ask him if it is good at another place. No, he sings out. You lost some of the tones there. Begin at the eleventh bar. At my failure to do this instantly, he laughs at some thought of his own. Must you begin back at the stove, he says. Stove, I repeat. He only laughs the more. You do not want to be like the dancer. Yes, there was a dancer once who always had to begin back at the stove when he broke down, because he had always started at the stove. I see the application of this, as I am unable to begin at any bar and have to go back to the first. You must be able to begin at any measure, he says, or you will always be nervous over slips of memory. When you make a mistake, study it. The mistake makes the right way clearer. Why did you stop? He questions me in another place. It was good. Go on. Go on. Play ideally, child. Ideally. That is all that is required of one. We now have a long conversation about the different interpretations that have been given the Reconnaissance. Paderewski had once played it, so Rosenthal and Dalbert in another way and one or two of the pupils had actually done something unusual and beautiful. The fingering made some difference in interpretation. As we proceed, he criticizes my pianissimo. It is not singing enough. One place should be piously played. He turns to me with a sly twinkle in his eye and asks if I do not know what it is to be pious. Well, he goes on, I am not afraid of the David's Bundler. Your rhythm is all right. Those are the easy things for you. But there is the danger. They must be well finished, too, or else you will disappoint your good friends. You must surprise rather than disappoint. Never disappoint an audience. You have studied well this week, he says, and learning to study well is the main thing. It is half the battle. I am overjoyed to hear this from him, as my last lesson was rather a mystery to me. Someone comes in to ask if the pupils who have waited so long shall continue to wait. Leshetitsky apologizes and says, No, I cannot do any more today. We go into the dining room, and I am invited to have dinner with him, all the conversation turning toward Schumann and Schutt and the various artists who have interpreted the Schumann Carnival to please great audiences.